0: Well, good afternoon, uh, ladies and gentlemen, and a very, very warm welcome to St. Paul's Cathedral and to this uh, St. Paul's Forum uh, today. Uh, My name is Mark Oakley, and I'm the Chancellor here at St. Paul's, and it's my uh, privilege and fun uh, today to not only introduce, but also to chair uh, this forum with David Ford. And uh, many of you, uh, and I think many of you already know David, because look how many of you have turned out. Um, but David, of course, is a very renowned, respected theologian who will be speaking today about his latest book, The Drama of Living, Becoming Wise in the Spirit. David Ford has been the Regius Professor of Divinity at the University of Cambridge since 1991. He's the founding director of the Cambridge Interfaith Programme, as well as a co-founder of the Society for Scriptural Reasoning. And this book, The Drama of Living, is the long-awaited sequel to The Shape of Living. And this new book delves into the uh, topics of wisdom, how we can live wisely in the presence of wisdom, and focuses very much on the gospel of St. John, but also on the poetry of Michal O'Shiel. I hope I've pronounced that. You have. Michal O'Shiel. And David explores Uh, themes within the ordinary dramas of living ranging of course from relationships and love uh, to how we cope with illness and dying and his books very interwoven with moments from life today personal encounters that have influenced his thinking and his writing he'll talk to us for about 40 minutes then uh, as usual we'll have some time for questions and answers Uh, A little mobile shop will then come in if you wish to buy uh, a copy of his book Uh, and I highly recommend that you do if you haven't already got it and uh, David's very kindly agreed to sign those for you before he gets his train home. So uh, let's get on with it and would you please join me in welcoming Professor David Ford.
1: Thank you very much indeed, Mark, and thank you very much indeed for coming. It's lovely to see so many here. Uh, And congratulations to Mark for being the one person in England who can pronounce Miholo Shield's name. (laughs) Uh, It's wonderful. Uh, I've also been treated to a little bit of an inside story to what really goes on as the Bishop of London's chaplain, I'm afraid. Mark, I hope you won't mind me saying that. There is, as you would notice if you buy the book, uh, a commendation from Richard Charteress, the Bishop of London, uh, on on the front of it. And uh, when uh, when Mark saw that, he said, oh yes, I remember, I used to write those for him. I'm <laughs> sorry. He didn't write this, and I know his chaplain didn't write it either, because I'm afraid I I sent sent an electronic text of this book to Richard Charter soon after I'd finished writing it because I I thought I'd be interested in what he said. and He sent me an email, and then then eventually I uh, extracted that from the the email that he'd sent me. So it was certainly not written by his current chaplain. I want to say just a little bit about the origin of this book, uh, and then talk about the content. And the, the origin, as, as Mark has suggested, uh, was a sequel to The Shape of Living, which was an Archbishop of Canterbury's Lint book in, I think it was 1998. And that, the, the, the sort of, uh, the combination of things that are in The Shape of Living, are the same basic combination of things in the drama of living as well. And they were the Bible uh, and the poetry of Michal I mean, I might say that Michal is one of my very closest friends. Uh, we've known each other since we were together in Trinity College, Dublin, and uh, where I did classics and he did Celtic languages. And uh, he, I have been for Gosh, nearly fifty years now. Uh, his the first reader of his poetry. So whenever he writes poetry, he, tend, he sends it to me, and he's also the first reader of my theology. And it has been an absolutely extraordinary experience to know that a poet like this is going to be the first reader of all that one, one writes. And of course, we've talked a lot about the content of it as well, and they have all sorts of resonances between them. So the second thing so the first, the Bible, the second, the poetry of Miolo and the third is life including quite a bit of my own life. And, um, and in the drama of living, these sort of three uh, really are intensified in various ways. The, the Bible is focused mainly on the Gospel of John. I am in the middle of writing a commentary on the Gospel of John and I've been 10 years on the job already so uh, and um, <laughs> there's a bad precedent for people writing commentaries on John. I mean, One of the most interesting recent books on John was by John McHugh who spent 18 years on his commentary and then a colleague of mine edited you know, what he had done so far when he died after 18 years. It was the first four chapters (laughs) and they have been published now Uh, and uh, but mine uh, you know has not happened yet uh, after 10 years but I'm also in the middle of giving a series of lectures called the Bampton lectures in Oxford on John's gospel as well so that's been also focusing my mind on John. So the focus is on John's gospel and then on Michal's poetry it's the, recently, Mehol's poetry has come out in this wonderful uh, collected works. It's thirteen collections, and so it's got all of his work, including, the, of course, the poetry that's been written since *The Shape of Living*. And it's also got a CD in the back with him reading his own poetry, and it's a it's, it's a, a lovely, lovely volume. But it, so that is the volume that's the other sort of companion work to the Bible. And then there's also, there's also another book, actually, which I'd just like to, to mention, which is this book, which is the most extraordinary book I've ever been part of writing. It's, it's called Wording a Radiance, Parting Conversations on God and the Church by Daniel W. Hardy with Deborah Hardy Ford, that's my wife, <laughs> Peter Oakes, he's a Jewish philosopher, and myself. Um, and that was the book that grew out of the last six months of Daniel Hardy's life. He was a theologian, an Anglican priest and theologian and my father-in-law and a very close colleague and co-author and so forth and during those during those months there was this extraordinary conversation between him and Peter Oakes. Uh, Peter knew that he had signed that Dan had signed a book contract with Cambridge University Press for a book on the church. It was clear when he was diagnosed with terminal cancer and given six months to live he wasn't going to actually write that book. And Peter rang him up from the University of Virginia almost every day, and he was on his computer at the other end, getting out of him what became the central chapters of this book. And then my wife wrote something about him, and including a, a final chapter on the, his, final, um, his final days. Uh, and I wrote a chapter too, um, but that book figures in the, the, the drama of living as well, in the, in the chapter on timing, ageing, and dying. Um, now, uh, so there, there, was, there was other books figuring in this, uh, and there's quite a lot more autobiography as well in it. Now, for me, writing the book, that meant that I did an awful lot of rereading of things. I reread a lot of Meehole's poetry. I was, you constantly reread the Bible, obviously, and rereading John's Gospel. My test for a really good book on John's Gospel is: does it make me reread the whole Gospel with that in mind? <laughs> uh, and I think you can do that every time you have a big experience, for example, a big change in your life or something, a book like John's Gospel, it, it does well with rereading. And um, one uh, one of the things I just want to read to you, uh, uh, one of my favourite passages from a book called Religious Reading, The Place of Reading in the Practice of Religion, by the, uh, he's actually um, from this country, Paul Griffiths, but he teaches in Duke University at the moment. And here he goes on religious reading. So far as I can recall, I have always been able to read, to make sense of and be excited by written things. I know, of course, that there was a time when I could not read. It's just that I cannot remember it. But I was never taught and have still not properly learned how to read with careful, slow attentiveness. It is difficult for me to read with the goal of incorporating what I read, of writing it upon the pages of my memory. I find it hard to read as a lover, to caress, lick, smell and savour the words on the page, and to return to them ever and again. I read instead mostly as a consumer someone who wants to extract what is useful or exciting or entertaining from what is read, preferably with dispatch, and then move on to something else. I'm not alone in this condition. Most academic readers are consumerist in their reading habits. And this is because they, like me, have been taught to be so and rewarded for being so. But I've also spent a good portion of my life trying to understand what it means to be a Christian, as well as much time studying literary works composed by Indian Buddhists. Both of these practices have gradually led me to see that consumerist reading isn't the only kind there is. It's also possible to read religiously, as a lover reads, with a tensile attentiveness that wishes to linger, to prolong, to savour, and has no interest at all in the quick orgasm of consumption. Reading religiously, I've come to think, is central to being religious. Losing or never having the ability so to read is tantamount to reading or never having the ability to offer a religious account of things. Now, for me, the experience of read of rereading those book, those poems that i had first read when michael first produced them sometimes many years previously but rereading all those poems and rereading the bible and rereading that that, that book the wording a radiance um, was was a basic experience so i've included in the book a chapter on rereading and it also goes on to rehearsing if you think of it so much of your life, if you're, do, if you're performing in any way, it's not just in dramas, but if you're doing a speech, if you're doing any sort of a presentation, if you're, you know, so much is preparation. You know, Most of our army's time is spent in preparing for war, not actually fighting war. Um, and so far in, in many of the other things that you'll be involved in. And so therefore rehearsing that practice of repetition and so forth is so absolutely fundamental. And of course it's fundamental to being religious as well. Look look at liturgy. You know, it gives you those massive buckets capable of carrying huge meaning from the word God onwards to salvation, to faith, to love and so forth. And we're given these big buckets Uh, words empty, so to speak, and slowly over time in the repetition, you know, we fill them with meaning. They're filled with our experience, they're filled with other reading, they're filled with all sorts of things that happen to us. And I think, therefore, this, uh, this and um, practice of re rereading, rehearsing and so forth is absolutely basic to our to our lives and and so much of our lives is repetition of various sorts, just think of your ordinary patterns of, of daily life. So there's a lot of reflection about that in, in that chapter in the book. Now why about why drama? Why do I take drama as the, the leading concept? Basically because I've become more and more convinced that it's One of the most adequate concepts for saying what life is about. And if you think of culture, you know, both popular and not so popular culture, an awful lot of it is films, dramas, soaps. All sorts of things which actually have drama in them, and even the the, the the news part of our of our media is full of drama, and they make sure that you try to have it. I mean, I was at a thing in the Sunday Times last week where the head of the BBC broadcasting was there, and she said news is by definition bad news, and what makes it news is tension, conflict, you know, things that it, drama, in other words. But of course, dramas can be dramas can be good, dramas can be bad, but um, <coughs> but more fundamentally, what I have become convinced of is that the primary perspective on life, the perspective that helps you to keep other things in balance as well, is what I call in, in this book the middle distance perspective. In other words, it's the perspective that we're in now, face to face. that Now, if you contrast that with the perspective on reality, that say you have, if you have a big overview of reality, a big philosophical system or a theological system or something, you know, that's an overview of things and it doesn't, it doesn't figure with the face-to-face and so forth, it may feed into it in, in various ways. But the primary way in which we live our lives is of course face-to-face and that's the, the, the ongoing drama of people and events and interaction over time. Um, and then if you think of another perspective at the opposite end of our interiority, all those things that go on inside our heads, inside our hearts that we, that, that, that we think, that are, that, that those interior perspective, that's also it. Now, all of those, it seems to me, are absolutely valid. The big overview perspective and trying to make the big connections and the generalisations and so forth, and the interiority things, the, the flow of consciousness that happens all the time and is happening in each one of us now. That all of those. Are, but it seems to me that both in life And also in the Bible, the primary perspective is the middle-distance perspective on interaction. If you think of Jesus and the Gospels, most of it is conversations and engagements with people and events in which he was meeting people in a sort of drama of living. Um, and we know very little about Jesus's inner life, the interiority, and he didn't make all that many big statements of large philosophical generalities either about, about reality. And so therefore, the primary way the truth of the gospel comes across, just as the primary way the truth of EastEnders or uh, you know, Coronation Street or, and, and most films and most dramas come across, is in that middle distance perspective. It's people and events in interaction over time. And that's, that's very interesting important because it's so easy to get seduced by some of the big generalizations or to get sucked into a sort of an interiority that's not or not actually actively in, in, engaged with other people all the time and i think that primary perspective of the face-to-face is therefore very important so it's one of the reasons why i found drama so helpful but of course drama in in terms of dramatists, what dramatists write and so forth, implies a script that you're following. And of course, the the difference of the drama of living is that we don't have such a nice convenient script, that uh, we're not told what to say next, you know, we have to think it up for ourselves. In other words, we are always improvising. And one of the key concepts in this book is that of improvisation that we are in an ongoing drama where of course we have our past and so forth and we have all the other things that in the culture and everything else but we are Uh, We've never been in this situation right here now before, you know, you haven't had this experience, I haven't had this experience, you haven't lived today before, you know, you are improvising in how you live this day. You have to respond to the immediate challenges, to all the things, the possibilities and so forth, and so therefore improvisation is absolutely crucial in the drama of living. So what I'm trying to do in this is to get a sense of our lives in dramatic terms, uh, of that, those interactions face-to-face with people as the primary one, not negating the, the big things and the interiority or anything, but saying that's primary, um, and it's certainly the primary way the Bible conveys its, its truth, um, and as I say, most contemporary culture too, um, but uh, but also trying to say, OK, what's happening in that improvisation? How do we become better improvisers? And that's what I mean by becoming wise in the spirit. Uh, by becoming wise in the spirit, it, you know, it, none of us is wise in the spirit in any absolute sense. But we've tr- it seems to me what we're, we're seeking to do is constantly be wiser improvisers in our dramas of living uh, as, as we face all the things that we face in, in our lives. And the more I read John's Gospel, the more I think that it is both the most dramatic of the Gospels in terms of the crafting of the scenes, all those encounters of Jesus right the way through the Gospel. You know, sometimes John's Gospel is read theologically with a huge emphasis on the prologue. And the prologue is you know, a very powerful piece of, piece of theology and so forth and I'll, I'll talk about it in a minute. But the... Uh, but the um, most of it is drama, most of it's narrative, dramatic narrative, uh, oh, that's, that's nearly the whole Gospel, with quite a lot of commentary and so forth as well. Um, but also, John's Gospel is very distinctive in having an awful lot more about the Spirit in it. Right from the first chapter, the Spirit abides on Jesus, rests on Jesus. And then right through the Gospel, there's various uh, common sense. And then, of course, climatically in the farewell discourses from chapters 13 to 17, there's far more about the Holy Spirit. And it's as if in John's Gospel, we are given the tools that were given a a, a way of approaching the ongoing drama of life in the Spirit with an emphasis that actually you have to improvise in the Spirit continually and John's Gospel is trying to help you do that. It's a sort of script for improvising, if you like, but that's not a paradox. Um, And the Holy Spirit, John says the most astonishing things about the Holy Spirit if you think of it, just to take two that I find intriguing. I mean, one is that the Holy Spirit will come and lead you into all the truth. In other words, that you're not, you know, John's Gospel doesn't claim to have all the truth or anything. It says truth is super abundant. There's more and more and more and more and more of it. And the Spirit is about leading you into all the truth and therefore you have to constantly improvise. You are constantly uh, be, have to be open to, to new truth, more and more and more of this infinite superabundant truth. Um, and, but then, even more astonishing in a way, is saying that uh, when Jesus says, uh, "It's better for you that I go away, because when the Spirit comes, you know, you'll do—you'll be—you'll you'll do greater things than I have done." John's is very much a succession gospel. You know, it's a gospel. It seems to me that was, that was written after many decades of meditation. I suspect, uh, you know, and. It is there for a church that is facing you know, transitions to a next generation. You know, and to be told, it's better that you go, that I go away by the leading character because the Spirit will come and you'll do greater things. That's quite an amazing promise. And it, and it, it gives you that sense of a confidence that actually, of course, John's Gospel is utterly central, is the, the resurrection of Jesus, the, the ongoing living Jesus, the presence of the living Jesus in the Spirit. And John's the only gospel that has the concept of following central in, in, the, uh, in, in the final chapter of it, in the, the post resurrection discourses. Um, but but what, jo- what John is doing is, I think, opening us up to a future in which we have to take a lot of responsibility for what we do. And I, I sometimes think that the most important single theological word in the gospel of John is the little word as just think of it love one another as i have loved you or as the father sent me so i send you and there's loads of other as's. you know it's around the foot washing too you know you have to do as jesus did in the foot now what does that mean john gives us this capacious tiny word as and you've to think love one another as i have loved you how did jesus love What does that mean now for us in our in our lives john has very little direct ethics you know he doesn't have the sermon on the mount he doesn't have direct teaching on marriage or anything like that john gives you these capacious words as and says you've got the spirit to lead you into all the truth you've got the spirit so that you can do greater things and as the father sent me so i send you what an extraordinary commission you know i mean what a responsibility and therefore we are commissioned to improvise. We're commissioned to do new things. We're commissioned to do greater things. We're commissioned to think thoughts that have never been thought before. And I think that's exactly what John was doing in his prologue. John's prologue is, you know, it isn't ascribed to Jesus. It's, it's, It's there, the first 18 verses of the gospel. And it begins with, in the beginning was the Word, that's the opening words of his own Bible in the beginning, NrK, the first words of the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, the Septuagint. And um, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then right up to one fourteen, uh, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. You know, this astonishing concept of incarnate. Nobody had ever thought like that before, as far as we know. We don't, <laughs> we don't have it anyhow if they had. Uh, no, John is being led into all the truth as the gospel, and stretching himself theologically into this astonishing uh, framework for his gospel. And, and note, where, note where it ends up, the prologue. It ends up with what I think for John is the deepest secret of reality. <coughs> it ends up, he talks about the son who is in the bosom of the father, or as the NRSV translated, the son <coughs> who, who is close to the father's heart. The centre of John's Gospel is this concept that reality is related, is central to reality, is the relationship of the father and the son. That, and that that is a relationship of love. Love isn't mentioned in the prologue, but that in the bosom of the Father. In other words, that our universe is centred on love. That's the mind-blowing concept at the centre of John's Gospel. John has more to say about love than any of the other Gospels. And if you go on into the first letter of John, which I see as a, a letter that's been written um, you know, within the same community, maybe by the same author, maybe maybe not, but it's utterly the same sort of language and so forth. Uh, and clearly, it's a community that has problems, that has divisions and so forth. And if you read one John, uh, you know, it's it's almost as if the author is saying, uh, you know, you remember Bill Clinton in his first presidential election had a sign up in all the office in all his election post, you know offices and that saying the economy stupid, you know, you know that was the Issue, uh, you know that that I, I see in the Johannine community, you know, they have up love, stupid, you know, you know, so, <coughs> so 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 much so that you know he even makes the ultimate statement that's not there in the gospel: God is love. You know, and if you read the the, the gospel, so, so love is absolutely central uh, to John's gospel, and um, and it's uh, you know it's that is what reality is about for for John. It's a daring, extraordinary understanding of what the nature of reality is, and, um, and what you know, one of the things that I try to do in the drama of living is to, well, see life as the drama of loving, that, uh, that love is, for most of us, I suppose, the most important thing in our lives, and it's certainly the most important thing in the Gospel of John, and, uh, and it's the most important thing, in, as I see it, in the, in the drama of, of living as well. but. We are told that we have to improvise love all the time. What our lives are about is that, you know, love one another as I have loved you. If you've to, and if you have to wash feet like Jesus washed feet, you know, you don't go around and obviously literally washing everybody's feet you come upon. That, that, that what do you do? You know, you've to try to think, okay, what is it? that has that spirit of radical service, of radical questioning of the hierarchies of life and of authority and so forth, you know, what is it that uh, that is in line with the the foot washing of of, of Jesus? Now, there was a little drama in the course of writing this book, Um, and uh, it was that having written six chapters, Michal O'Shea's <coughs> wife, Brij, died. And Michal rang me up when she was in her final hours. You know, they were just about to turn the machines off, and, and I flew over to Dublin uh, and was there at, at her death when, when they turned the, the machines off. Um, and, um, and, then, and, and that had two consequences for this book. Uh, one was that when I came back, I found my flow of, of writing, uh, uh, you know the six chapters had sort of you know, been, been written in flow, so to speak, just was interrupted, and I found that I, I just couldn't I had known them for, 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 for you know as long as they 'd been married. I knew Michal before he, he married Breed, and she had had parkinson's for the last twenty years you know um, and um, so, and, and I, fi- I wrote a, the final chapter, you know, there's only one chapter to write, and I wrote the final chapter and then I sent it off to Mihol. I remember, and I knew inside it didn't work, but, I, but you know, I, I sent it off without any comments, you know, and I'm afraid that the message came back, this doesn't fly. <laughs> and so I scrapped it completely um, and eventually wrote the, the chapter you have, you have there, you know, which is actually a commentary on a, a remarkable poem of Mihol called Only End. Um, but the but that was the first effect. Um, the, the second effect was that I was landed with uh, in Dublin there, you know, the to write the funeral address for Breege uh, at the funeral that was to follow in three days time. And so I had to sit down and try to do justice to this remarkable woman. Uh, and um, and then give the address at the funeral. And the, the address that was given was at the, is at the back of the drama of living. I, I do it as, as an appendix, in there. And that wrestling with that, you know, how sometimes some of the biggest things in life, you know, just happen. You, you know, you do, that you dawn. They dawn on you slowly, even though they're very obvious to you. It should have been obvious, you know, from way back. You know, and they, they slowly just dawn and come home to you, really deep down. And the thing that came home to me in a a much more focused, powerful way, and I had to rewrite some of the other chapters as a result, was um, what I call um, the the, the way in which the stronger and the weaker need to come together. You know, that uh, that vision of how the stronger need the weaker and the weaker need the stronger in, in, in life. Uh, I mean Breed had, had Parkinson's for 20 years. I'd witnessed their marriage, you know, Mihol's faithfulness to her and the, the love between them and the mutuality and it wasn't a sort of condescending love of someone caring for somebody with Parkinson's or something, you know, it was an utterly rich, deep, you know, marriage and that. And, uh, but she'd been a headmistress and so she'd been strong, you know, as well, you know. And so, so the, there's, there's this sense of breed as the strong headmistress breed as the one who was eventually utterly dependent, you know, as, as a Parkinson sufferer had to go into a care home and so forth. And what that linked up with, uh, for me, was the Larch communities that I've had a very long association with. How many people have actually heard of the Larch? L apostrophe A R C H E, Jean Vannier. It's a good number. That's that's lovely. I mean, those of you who don't, you know, go and find out. Do you know, There's a lot about it in in, in this, but but. Um, but my wife and I have have, have been involved with Champagne for for you know, twenty five years or so, um, and and with the Larsh communities. In fact, my wife has just founded a, a sort of Larsh inspired community, not a residential community, but a sort of friendship place in in Cambridge. Just in the last couple of years, in relation to that. But the but the central insight was this: eh, that our society and our you know world is healthiest when we centre on those who are the weaker, those who are the more marginalised, those who are the disabled, those with disabilities and so forth, and that, uh, you know, to centre on the successful and the powerful and the financially wealthy and, the, and so forth, you know, is what obviously most of the world does, You know, that's where most things are centred, but Jean Vanier's radical vision of the large communities is of communities where the little ones are in the center you know and that that brings out from and, and it's not just it's not a condescending thing at all it's deeply mutual you know that what happens there is the sort of love uh, that actually our world most most deeply needs um, so that was that was one of the effects of that was the second effect of of the um, Uh, 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 of Breed's death uh, uh, on on the book, and that that community of the weaker and the stronger. And, you know, that if our churches can't be communities of the weaker and the stronger, you know, then we're missing out, it seems to me, on the heart of the the, the gospel. I I took part in a remarkable uh, process, with Jeremy Begbie, some of you will know him, he's uh, you know, on theology and the arts and there was a collaborative thing with Duke University which I was part of the group on theology and the arts um, and we commissioned James Macmillan, the Scottish composer, to do a St. Luke Passion. Uh, he'd done a St. John Passion and we'd all sort of study that together and heard it performed in King's College Cambridge when he you know, during one of our things. And uh, but he wrote that, and it was performed in duke university 's chapel, which holds a thousand people, packed a thousand people last Palm Sunday the first time and the most moving thing about this progression is that he has the voice of Jesus is a children 's choir and I read next day on you know Luke is the reading in in the first month in Monday in the lecture in the f- Monday of Holy Week. Uh, I heard those words differently, having heard them sung by a children's choir. You know, the, <coughs> the, the youngest is the greatest. You know, that, that's, that's the thing in, in Luke's gospel. It's that insight, it seems to me, that's right at the heart of the large communities and I think right at the heart of the, the gospel as well. Now, where on earth does one go next in, in, relation, to, in relation to this? I'm nearly at the end of my time. And, well, I'll, I will, I probably should talk a little bit more about love. Um, first, let me make a sort of scholarly uh, <laughs> uh, observation about, about love in, in John's Gospel. Um, and it, it also applies to that opening prologue of John, uh, Logos. You know, John's Gospel is remarkable at um, both going deep into the Jewish uh, roots, you know, his Jewish roots. I think it's pretty clear. John was a, a Jewish Christian, and um, you know, into the the, the 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 for us the Old Testament, you know, the Hebrew scriptures as translated into the in, into Greek. Uh, and I think my favorite of all books, the book I'd bring to a desert island, is the Septuagint, the uh, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, done a couple of centuries before Christ. And um, and, and the more i read that the more i understand john a little better <laughs> uh, through reading his bible in his language um, but 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 john is remarkable in both is in combining those deep roots of, uh, of his, his his scriptures uh, with his engagement with the surrounding civilization the hellenistic civilization of the roman empire that he, he lived in um, and i think two of his utterly key terms that he does this with are logoth, which, of course, is the word for the Word of God. It's the word for the, the commandments. You know, The Decalogue is the 10 words, the 10 commandments. Uh, it's also the word for, you know, for the writings, and it's a word for wisdom. In other words, it covers the whole of his scriptures. Logos is a beautiful term for what, what goes on in the whole of the scriptures. Uh, and also, it's a key word. In the civilization, it's a very rhetorical civilization where the word really matters. But also, it's a term, you know, as we get it in geology and so forth. You know, it's it's used for the sciences, for rationality, and and so forth, and for all sorts of discourses in the in that culture. So, so John is doing intercultural theology by opening his gospel with a key term for Jesus that resonates both with the Jewish heritage and with the wider civilization. And he does exactly the same with love, because. When uh, Jesus uh, says, you know, greater love has nobody than, no one than this that, to lay down their life for a friend, he's using two words there. There's, there's agape, which is the word that is used in the Septuagint for love a lot of the time, including, interestingly, in the Song of Songs. You know, it's agape that's used in the Song of Songs, much to some people's surprise. Um, uh, but, but also he's using, you know, friends, philia, friendship, that is... Um, uh, the general term in the culture, in the civilization. And so he mixes these terms together so that anybody in the Hellenistic world will learn the resonances of agape, and anybody in the Jewish world will, 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 will appreciate the, the wider resonances in the civilization. And of course, in that final chapter, which I want to say a little bit about, the, the extraordinary final chapter of the Gospel of John, um, the, um, in that, in the Peter encounter with Peter, where he asks, you know, "Do you love me?" Um, and then uh, feed my sheep and so forth, the words "love" switch. Some of them are agape, some of them are philia. You know, the, the verbs are used in it. Um, and in other words, John, it seems to me, is all the time trying to write the sort of gospel that will resonate widely. And you just think of it too how he uses the great symbols of bread and water and wine and wind and and that he's wanting to do a gospel that's generally open to be, you know that that people with of, in the general culture can resonate with but also of course he's wanting to tell a highly particular story about a particular jew uh, and resonating with the jewish scriptures throughout john has less direct quotations from the old testament and more allusions He's utterly steeped in it. He has read and reread his scriptures. And one of the things to note about John is that in the way he interprets his scriptures, he's trying to teach you, the reader, how to read him. In other words, he, I think it's pretty clear, he saw himself as writing scripture. You know, he opens with the opening of his thing. I, I had a remarkable experience the, uh, early on in my process of writing my commentary, which hasn't been written yet. Um, I, I, I saw that, uh, that Richard Baucombe, uh, a New Testament scholar who is a professor in St. Andrews, was retiring to Cambridge. And at the same time, Richard Hayes, my favourite of all North American biblical scholars in Duke University, was on sabbatical for six months. So I, uh, I, got into, I emailed them and said, would you like to read John's Gospel together? And they both said yes, so we put 21 dates in the diary, three hours each, uh, one for each chapter of John's Gospel between July and Christmas, and we read through the whole Gospel together. Now, they differed on all sorts of things, which is fascinating for me, because you know I, it meant that I was writing my commentary and dialogue with others, uh, and that. But, but the... the um, but whenever they agreed, I really listened. because, <laughs> you know, And one of the things they agreed on was that John was writing Scripture and saw himself as writing Scripture. And, of course, this is, this is very important, therefore, that he saw himself as writing something that was meant to be read, re-read 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 and he writes it in multi-leveled way you know oh, it's so intriguing to go, go through john and see he has this extraordinary openness of texture which you, you know there's a surface meaning and then you go on and on there's more and more and more depth beyond, beyond beneath depth um, and the, this this sense of john that that and when you look at him how he reads his scriptures just take that one those opening words NRK, you know in the beginning they're the opening words of Genesis 1-1. And then, what does he do? He's off. In, a, in the beginning, not God created, but in the beginning was the Word. And which is an interesting interpretation, because you know, God creates with the Word in Genesis 1-1. In the beginning was the Word. It, but it's, it's what Jews call a midrash. It's a midrash. It's a daring interpretation of Genesis 1-1 in the light of Jesus Christ. So it's a Christological interpretation, as we theologians say. And it's... A, And and John, again and again, daringly interprets his scriptures. And I think what he expects us to do is to daringly interpret him As well, in other words, he doesn't want just to say what he said; he wants us to do what he did. What he did was he daringly interpreted his scriptures, and he was led into all the truth more and more and more. He wrote the prologue, you know, this extraordinary piece of theology that's gone on generating theology, probably the single most important short text in the history of Christian theology. Um, And he leaves us with that. But does he expect us just to endlessly repeat the prologue? No, he expects us to go on and do things like the prologue and to be open to all sorts of further things, as we engage with all the, you know, I, I, all things. He talks about Jesus being involved with all things. That means that we are to think theologically in relation to all things, all cultures, all sciences, all arts, all literatures, all, all religions. And that comes to the all religions part that I do want to say a little bit about. How much longer do you think I really have, Mark? <laughs>
0: about three minutes.
1: Three minutes. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> Okay, fi- 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 final three minutes um, is going to be on the interfaith dimension of this, because one of the most amazing things that has happened to me in my theological career has been involved in that practice of scriptural reasoning, of reading our scriptures with Jews and Muslims and fellow Christians. Uh, and it's led into all sorts of intriguing things. And If any of you want to talk more about it, you can ask a question about it, and then I might have an excuse to say more. <laughs> uh, the, uh, but... And, but but in the in in one of the chapters, you know, the, the, I think it's the second chapter about wisdom within and between traditions. I talk about this experience of bringing. Uh, your own scriptures into dialogue with other scriptures and what's happened in that. I mean I have read John chapter 1 and other parts of John with Jews and Muslims and that is an interesting thing. There's no way that they will take on incarnation, (laughs) the the concept of incarnation that that, that is there. But what we have found in, what I've found in doing this for about 20 years, and I talk talk a bit about that and some of the contemporary developments in it, is that it's been one of the most fruitful ways of just getting some sense in which this extraordinary Logos, that the Word, the Word of God, relates to all things, relates to all religions. No, and this full of surprises because of the drama it's not that you have some big theory about how the logos how Jesus relates to Judaism or Christianity or Islam or uh, uh, you know that, that it's, it's not because of some theory. what happens is that you are dramatically engaged with actual Muslims and Jews and in the process of doing that of studying your scriptures you go deeper into your own scriptures deeper into theirs deeper into our common engagement with the world um, and it's a drama. It's an ongoing drama where new insights happen. You don't have an overview of how God deals with Jews or how God deals with, or how God deals with yourself, who does? You know, it's great, very mysterious, isn't it? How God deals with any of us. Uh, but, but what happens is that in that drama of engagement around these extraordinarily rich texts, new things happen, new insights and new relationships. And my final word is um, that one of the discoveries in that has been that friendships do not require consensus. They don't require agreement and everything. You can have deep, deep friendship with people with whom, theologically, you have deep disagreements. And I think our world needs those sorts of friendships. John's gospel has more about friendship than any of the others. Um, And I think that um, wherever you find anything that really crosses deep divisions um, in a long-term way, somewhere in the ecosystem you find daring, faithful friendships. And I would just challenge you all that ask yourselves in terms of your friends, you know, are you open to the sort of daring, faithful friendships across the big divisions of our society and culture and of the religious divisions? How many Muslim friends do you have? Maybe some Muslims here. <laughs> the, uh, you know, that, that this call to radical love, to radical friendship, I think is the thing that fulfills that extraordinary vision of John Gospel. Well, God so loved the world, the world, that he gave his son, so that, etc. Yeah.
0: Thank you very much indeed. <laughs> I feel as if I've just been walking along a beach doing a lot of beach-combing, theological beach-combing, and seeing some startling, colourful thing that I suddenly want to take home with me. Um, and so much there. So please, now is your time to, uh, to ask questions of Professor Ford. Yes, here.
2: Well, well <clears throat> I'd rather like to hear your meditation on the second chapter of John, because after the prologue, he goes into the mundane, plunges straight in to a very simple narrative. The, the marriage feast of Cana of Galilee. I think one of the few times he mentions the Virgin Mary, and and he he it uh, transforms the the thrust of the gospel mm-hmm. into the ordinary.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. I think I think that's such a good point. You know, the ordinary is. Up- Absolutely there. Uh, you, know, you know, and of course, that culminates in the final chapter, which I didn't yeah. say much about, you know, because what's happening there, it seems to me, uh, you know, and I have a, in, 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 in the book, I discuss this, a little, you know, first of all, there's the big upfront named disciple, Peter. You know, the dramatic one, uh, overtly dramatic, so to speak, you know, uh, who, who is, uh, you know, who has denied him three times and then is, you know, is asked three times, do you love me? And so forth and then told that he's going to die, you know, uh, a very public death, so to speak. That's the public drama. But then he asks about the beloved disciple who is not named just as the mother of Jesus is not named in John's Gospel. Why? Why? I think because we're all meant to figure into those fundamental characters, the mother of Jesus, the beloved disciple. You know, that There are two, a male and a female character, who are invited to, to, to identify with him. But But then he says, what is it to you if he should abide, remain? It's that, that basic word menine, you know, which if you read the parable of the thine in chapter 15, it's 10 times in 10 verses, I think, that word, menine, abide comes. It's one of the fundamental words for John. And so it's not just an accident. You know, they say, what is it to you if he should abide? And, and where is he abiding? Because if you go back to the crucifixion, uh, you know that Jesus from the cross says, mother, behold your son, son, behold your mother. You know the beloved disciple, and you know in John's world, you know the beloved disciple and the mother of Jesus are living are living together. In other words, we're given this just little final touch that the ongoing drama, the ongoing ordinary drama, domestic drama, you know, is there. That's where John's gospel generates from. You know that this is the the testimony. You know that generates the gospel. And so you have in that final epilogue the combination of the public and the ordinary drama. And I think you're so right that that the the, the don't get me started on th- these things because you know when 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 you choose a chapter that I've actually written the commentary on, you know, you're likely you're likely to get an awful lot more than you bargained for. But 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 uh, but let me just give one clue. Let me just give one clue. This is this is that one of the most wonderful commentaries on the wedding at Cana is a poem by that superb American poet, Richard Wilbur. Uh, I see a nod here. He is just superb, Richard Wilbur. And he has a toast at his son's wedding. I mean, it's, it's a toast at his son's wedding, which he builds around, you know, at the toast at his wedding, around the story of Canaan. And it's the most wonderful thing, both theologically and humanly, I think, of exactly turning ordinary drama you know, into, Really deep, rich theology and poetry at the same time.
0: Yes.
2: We talk of friendship. Are you aware that in the Quran it explicitly states Muslims mm-hmm. must not be friendly to
1: Jews and Christians? Yes, I am. Yes, I, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I, 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 I happen to be. I happen to be supervising a doctoral student who is doing a doctorate on scriptural reasoning at the moment, and she is. Uh, and she has, you know, exactly engaged with the fact that certain words for friendship, you know, uh, certain terms for friendship in Arabic, you know, uh, are, uh, you know that, that that is forbidden. And that, of course, as so often in traditions, there's a very long and interesting history of discussion of such matters in Islam. I mean, one, one of the things that scriptural reasoning brings home to you is that, uh, you know, very clearly, actually, for me, is that, you know, I'd been an academic theologian for quite a while before engaging with Jews and Muslims in this practice. And I soon learned that all my generalizations about Judaism or about uh, Islam had to be subjected to the living testimony of people who are actually living it, who know their texts, who know their hadith, know their Quran, and so, and so forth. And therefore, you don't just quote the Quran. you know, you, know, you don't just quote the Quran at people if you're, if you're not, you know, you know that what you realise is that every quotation is linked to this, is linked to that. There's all these commentaries, just as there is, of course, similar in, in Judaism and, and in Christianity. And so proof texting, you know, in relation to Muslims, you know, from, from the, is, is not, is, you know, that what you do is you engage in a, in a study, you engage in with them, try to enter into their world, enter into argument with them, of course, about this as well, and find that there's all sorts, you know, just as in Christianity, there are really difficult texts, complex texts, texts of terror and so forth. So there are in Judaism, so there are in Islam. And each of the traditions has wiser and less wise ways of coping with them. And of course, uh, what we're seeing you know, globally at the moment in many ways is some of the less wise ways. But might I just say, you know, you know, just leaping into the heart of contemporary stuff, if you want, you know, given Isis, the prominence of Isis at the moment, um, I've just come back from Jordan a couple of weeks ago. I mean some of you may have seen on the television some of us Prince Charles and King Abdullah of Jordan where, where were meeting and they convened a gathering of of people uh, about 30 religious and interreligious leaders and um, and, and it was a most, most interesting thing, which leads into, which c- could, you know, should, you know, one of the things we were discussing was uh, uh, the possibility of a global covenant of religions, which I hope you'll hear more of in the future, uh, because I, I, I think it has legs and will travel. You know, the, this, this concept that you can draw on the depths of the different religious traditions in order to. Uh, not just bind particular traditions together, but bind them together across traditions. You know, in other words, that there are there are the resources in the religions for at least as great peacemaking as there is for conflict. You know, and how do you draw on those resources of the religions for peace? In order to, that's what we were were discussing there. Um, but But one of the documents that we were all given there was a document, how many people have actually read the open letter to the head of ISIS, to Baghdadi, the head of ISIS, that's been issued by 126 Muslim scholars? Nobody, you see, that, that, that no, but, uh, It doesn't surprise me at all, uh, and it's not, it, you know, it's not a criticism or anything. No, because, because people just don't know. This is a, a, a thing that takes on the teachings of uh, ba- Baghdadi and, and the IS people, bit you know, one thing after another, and their actions as well. You know, their practices and responds from mainstream Islam. You know, these are 126 scholars from about 50 countries. You know, who who, who do that, and of course. The good news never hits the, <laughs> the news stance, does it? You know, but, but this is part of a, a really very strong movement within Islam to try to counter you know, the, the, ex- the extremists in Islam. Now, I know that there's all sorts of other things you, you can say about it, but but I think those of us who, uh, you know who are not Muslim need I, I think we need to do two things in relation to that sort of thing you know that, that a we do need to try to be fr- try to be friends you know you know that, that, that we need to we, we need to make fr- fr- friends and and be allies in relation to this which you know, Muslims can't cope with themselves, but they have a, an internal thing to But we also should really support the internal things that happen and get to know about them too and, and spread the news of them. I mean, the, 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 you begin by Googling the Aman message and then you Google a common word. You go to a common word.com. That's the letter from 138 Muslim leaders on the love of God and love of neighbour to Christian. How many people have heard of that? yeah two yes it's the most significant muslim initiative towards christians ever it's it's called a common word between us and you and it had a most remarkable response from the vatican rowan williams wrote one of the best letters one of the best interfaith documents available, actually, called A Common Word for the Common Good. That was his response to it. If you read those two, I teach this to my first years in Cambridge. If you read A Common Word Between Us and You and A Common Word for the Common Good parallel to each other, you have the best insight into contemporary interfaith engagement, I think, that you could get theologically, you know, to, to combine those two together. Um, and, um,
0: you know, and so on. Uh, I could go on forever. Well, you heard it here first. Uh, yes, please, sir. Um, I've got an interesting question.
2: Um, so I grew up in a Christian household in a predominantly Muslim village uh, in Jerusalem. And therefore, most of my close friends now today are Muslims, although I'm a Christian. And my question for you is, how can, um, how can you hold together um, our, your understanding as a Christian, which is that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, with um, the word of God relating to all people in terms of Christian identity?
1: Yes. Um, I mean, in John, if John's gospel, it's very interesting. Frances Young, who's one of my favorite theologians, you know, she, 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 she's a patristic scholar as well as a New Testament scholar. Um, she reflects on precisely that verse, you know, how it was done in the patristic period, you know, how the early Christians, you know, dealt with that. You know, and it wasn't to rule out the possibility of salvation for other people at all. You know, why? Okay, why? Because in John's gospel, when Jesus says, "I am," who is the I? The I is the Logos through whom all things were created. In other words, it's not, you know that, that to think. That what Jesus is saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. You know, who is the me there, and how does that me work? You know, th- th- this is a, a me who works universally. I mean, who, who who's involved with all things you know by definition you know and that that's how john defines who the me is in that sense so therefore it's not a matter you know of saying that if you haven't actually committed your life to christ in a one to one encounter and you know you know and said you know therefore you're damned or anything like that that's completely alien to john's gospel um, you know that that uh, it seems to me that john um, I mean, there's a huge literature, of course, on you know precisely these sort of things and about the limits of salvation and all the rest. But <coughs> if, if I might sum up, you know, the, the, my own line on on, on that, um, it, it is that um, what we as Christians are committed to doing is to giving testimony to Jesus as the Word of God, the Son of God. You know, they, you know all the you know, I'm an absolutely mainstream Orthodox Christian in terms of what you know in, in what what one says, um, and How does that relate? You know, how does God relate to other people? I don't have an overview. There's a real mystery, and I think that's very much a a biblical concept as as well. You know, I don't know how God relates to Muslims. I only know that I am absolutely committed to both. You know, I give testimony, scriptural reasoning. You know, you say what you think the gospel means. You know, and it's you know the sharing of your different truths, and you can disagree. One of our favorite things is it's about improving the quality of disagreement. No, like marriage, the, the, and, and the, um, and, 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 and what and, and what, what how one handles the exodus. I, I, you know, probably the theologian who, well, take a Catholic and a Protestant theologian have really wrestled with the salvation, you know, beyond beyond the church, and so forth, with with, with that question, uh, Karl Barth concluded, in radical critique of his own Calvinist tradition, where there was double predestination, he concluded, the Christian is one who, in the light of Jesus Christ, is permitted to hope for the best for everyone. (laughs) <laughs> and Karl Rahner, the great, Ameri- great, great, the great uh, Catholic theologian. I mean, who is another wonderful classic of the 21st century, has a very, a very similar line. You know, from, from a Catholic side. Um, and my final word on that is that each of our traditions, Jewish, Christian and Muslim, and I'm only, you know, I mean, the Hindu and all those are, you know, fascinating, and I'm just not going there at the moment, you know, we don't have too, too long time, um, that, that, um, that each of them are eschatological faiths. In other words, they have a future that is God's future, and in all of them, they all confess there are going to be surprises in the future. You know, if anything is true of Jesus' talking about the end, it is that people are going to be surprised. When did we call you Lord, Lord? You know, there are going to be surprises. And by definition, you don't know what the surprises are, otherwise we wouldn't be a surprise. So, 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 so I, I, I find in interfaith engagement that one has to be utterly, you know, I have to be utterly Christian. I expect others to be utterly Jewish, utterly Muslim, and, and so forth. We engage in the drama of this. We don't have God's overview of this drama and we certainly don't know where the drama will head but we are confident that a compassionate, merciful loving God, you know, has a good future for all of us and that there will be good surprises in that future.
0: There is time for one last, because we do have a rule that we finish at two so we all know where we are, there is uh, time for one last uh, question if if something, yes, yeah.
2: I just wanted the connection between religion and culture in that they often cross over. I've worked in uh, last 20 years in a, in a whole range of developing countries, so I have worked alongside Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, and I've been forced to confront a lot of those issues that you've been talking about. And I think in the end I decided that the way to look at it pragmatically was people are either into love or power. And even those who are ostensibly into love can often really be into power, the people who run churches, the Pharisees of this, of this sort of world. And it, it's a bit like, I mean, I have no difficulty during the creed when talking about, we spoke through the prophets, to think of Muhammad, let's be his name, mm-hmm. because it, it, is, it is a tradition where God has spoken to man. But man on the receiving end is always locked into some sort of culture, some uh, some tradition, something in their DNA, which has shaped their view of all sorts of things, personal relationships, relations to outside, stewardship of the earth, and all that type of thing. And so to some extent, even in Islam, God has become incarnate, incarnate in Arabic culture, the view that it has to be God speaking in the Quran because the wording is so beautiful. Only God could have spoken. Those sorts of things. We're moving to a stage of the world where, in fact, there ain't much uh, space between cultures now. We're, we're, we're coming into each other all the time. And I suppose what I hear you saying about the interfaith thing is the beginning of, of perhaps finding a, a point of reference outside of not only theologies as we've inherited them, but cultures and trying to, to shape a kind of um, a view that can combine everybody. Uh, mm
1: well i, I I'm, that sounds a bit like a sort of the overview type of thing I mean what i 'm into is that dramatic encounter you 've had dramatic encounters in one culture after another, and I think we just go on doing that you know but but I love your thing about love and power it's, it, in john 's gospel it's the foot washing isn't it you know it's Jesus saying you know the way i 'm Lord is to wash feet and and you know in other words, it 's an act of love and and that that's that's the heart of the matter, it, you know, in the, the, all the many tomes on the ethics in John's Gospel that I read, you know, it, it's funny how many of them pivot around the foot washing, and of course foot washing is also, as, as I talk about in the, in the book, is the, the practice of the L'Arche communities, you know, they wash each other's feet, and it is an astonishing experience actually, to be, uh, you know, to be in a community where that happens.
0: Mark, you are. Come and of course, the command in John's Gospel uh, to wash feet is as strong as the command to take bread and wine, but I often wonder what the church would have done if we'd made that to the regular Sunday service. Uh, we'd be having arguments now about uh, the length of the towel, the temperature of the water, whether women can wash feet. I can just imagine, can just imagine what we would have made of it. Um, uh, I said just now that we... Uh, Uh, what I felt as if I was being taken along the beach and wanted to pick up lots of things to take home. Um, Thoughts about how we read, and not only how we read scriptures, but also our lives, how we listen to our lives, and always in both of those, uh, trying to read the love between the lines. Um, About middle-distance perspective, about daring friendships, uh, about being wise improvisers in this rather fragile and... Magnificent living that we're all a part of. I do feel as if um, an academic who is capable of theological exposition on two words, two little letters uh, put together called as, <laughs> uh, has also uh, brought us back to the simple heartlands of Christian faith. And um, I-, I was profoundly moved by that, and uh, I want to thank you very much. Um, The final word of this uh, book really is is drama. It's an interesting word to use and uh, I used to be at the Actors Church so I I went through a lot of dramas there. And I remember the Times critic, Benedict Nightingale, saying he believed that theatre, drama, was the last real um, gymnasium for underused imagination. And I said, hmm... I hope the church might be that too, and I would love it to say welcome to St Paul's Cathedral. This is a gymnasium for your underused imagination, and I think in many ways you've you've actually put us on the treadmill here uh, today. And on behalf of us all here, thank you very much indeed.